Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. Thanks for being here. I'm Chris Hill and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser from Motley Fool Supernova. Matt Argusinger, and from Fool.com, David Hansen. Good to see you guys. Hey, digging hey. back we've, to daylight. Exactly. We've got the latest from housing, retail, finance, and more. Best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell is our guest this week. And as always, we'll share a few stocks you can put on your watch list. But we begin this week with the big macro. U.S. retail sales fell unexpectedly in January, and economists are placing the blame squarely at the feet of Mother Nature. The unusually cold weather across the country this winter is having an effect on retail sales, auto sales, and traffic at restaurants. And Jason, from time to time, I think it's fair to say we've made fun of companies when <laughs> they have a disappointing quarter and they blame the weather. I kind of feel like, given the weather, the weather that we've had over the last few months, should we just give everyone a pass next quarter? I, I, I'd like a pass. I mean, my back is kind of sore today from the shoveling I had to do yesterday. And so, I, yeah, I mean, I, we do, I think, have a lot of fun with the companies that sort of quarter in and quarter out bring weather as an excuse. Now, with that said, it is certainly understandable that some businesses may be more susceptible uh, to bad weather than others. However, I will say that for investors that take the long view, like we do, uh, Weather just shouldn't really ever come into play. I mean, unless you're investing in like insurance companies, it just it should never come into play. But it can provide opportunities in the short run because the headlines focus on the weather. These these executive teams focus on the weather in their earnings calls, and when they bring the weather up, it can certainly cause some short term movements in the stock prices. But uh, you know, I, I personally like winters like this because we're kind of wrapping it up. Hopefully soon, you're coming into this nice spring, and I'm going to be watching Home Depot and Lowe's because I think that those are the kinds of companies that really stand to do well when the weather turns, because everybody's really antsy to get out there and do something with their house, their yard, whatever it may be. And it's probably all going to kind of head out there at once. So, uh, I bet you that'd be something to keep an eye on, at least in the near term. Yeah, no no question. The weather finally had a real, real impact. I mean, if you look at Restaurants or retailers, and you look at their same store sales. A lot of bad news out there, and I, I think you know when the weather's really bad, as it has been, it's it's really just tough for for a lot of these businesses to do well. The customers just aren't interested in going out. I mean, even even the, the government's saying the weather's been playing a role. If you look at the manufacturing data that came out today, it was the lowest since the first quarter of 2009, um, and really they're saying the the weather was predominantly the reason for that. Um, and even even a company like Whole Foods, which most of us love here at the Fool. You know, they never blame the weather, never. But here, there was Walter Robb, a CEO we all respect. He was on the, um, you know, on CNBC yesterday saying, "Nope, you know, the weather had a little bit of an impact on our traffic, no doubt." <laughs> I wonder if you'll ever have like an executive just take a stance and never. He's gonna like vow to never use the weather, no matter what, even if he's wrong. David, um, we were talking this morning. You basically said, "Nope, I'm not. I'm not." Giving anyone a pass. <laughs> I'm just not concerned. I'm brutal. I'm cold, but I'm not concerned. I mean, we're buying businesses for the long haul. The cash they're going to produce over 20 years, a single quarter is not going to make a big difference to me. Is there any potential winner here? I have to believe the Florida Tourism Board is thrilled about the weather the rest of the United States is getting here. Well, look no further than Netflix. Netflix has hit. You know, a new all-time high every day of the past two weeks. And you know, if there's one company you have to think about that's getting a lot, a lot of usage over the last you know several months now with this weather, it's got to be Netflix. You had House of Cards coming out today, Ooh. I guess too. Ooh. So that'll God, be a big just boost. Just reminded me. 
Just in time for Valentine's Day, a new marriage in the cable industry. Comcast has made a $45 billion bid to buy Time Warner Cable. It is an all-stock deal, Matt. Um, But this is the two biggest companies in an industry merging. And regardless of the industry, anytime you see the two biggest getting together, it sets off a lot of red flags. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, look, if you look, Michael Copps, who's the former FCC commissioner, was on the news yesterday saying, look, this deal is so over the top that it ought to be dead on arrival at the FCC. Now, so there's a, there's a lot of questions whether this deal can actually go through. If it goes through, though, I mean, this is this is going to be a massive company. I mean, we're talking you know over 30 million customers, 100 billion in revenue. Um, as we were talking before the show, we think, and rightfully so, I think that this is really a broadband play. We know that cable companies are facing a lot of competition. You got Amazon out there, you got Netflix out there, even Apple and Google to a certain extent. The pipes. Owning the pipes is big, and if you can own it across bigger geography with more customers, it gives them more pricing power. It's good for them. Ultimately, probably a little bad for customers. Jason, the last time Comcast made a big acquisition, it was NBC Universal. That was a deal that took more than a year to get regulatory approval. So I have to assume this, to Maddie's point, this is going to take even longer. I would think so. I mean, what would Teddy Roosevelt say, right? He's probably rolling oh. over his grave on this thing. But uh, no, I don't think this is going to be just some cut and dry, quick, quickly done deal. It's going to it's going to take a while. And if it does go through, uh, yeah, they're going to be they're going to certainly be a lot of implications, uh, winners and losers. I think that you know we we've seen enough from Comcast to know that it probably doesn't look like it's all that great for customers. Uh, I mean, prices will go up at some point, uh, no matter how they sort of frame that verbiage there. But, uh, you know, I, I've always thought, what if you flipped it around on, on the on the other side of the coin? We've, we've always said, you know, Comcast, they just have this reputation for just awful customer service. Uh, and, and I don't know anything about that, Chris, because I had Verizon Fios at my house. Yeah, but, uh, lucky punk. <laughs> what if, you know? What if they? What if they took like the Bezos Hastings approach of of trying to focus primarily on their customers and really upping their game on the customer service side? I think that could change the perception a little bit because then at least people feel like they're getting more value. Uh, you know, more bang for their buck. But uh, yeah, this is going to probably drag out for a while. David, let me hit you with a quote. This is. Executive Vice President David Cohen at Comcast on the conference call with regards to pricing. He said, we, certainly, we are certainly not promising that customer bills are going to go down or that they will increase less rapidly. Which, on the one hand, I give him points for being about as frank as he could be. On the other hand, as a customer, I read that as, my bill is absolutely going higher. I'm going to take an interesting stance on this and somewhat defend the cable operators. Okay? What? You see that you see the price increases, but a lot of that is not just them being like, okay, we're going to be completely evil companies and just gouge everybody. You look at companies like ESPN; they are charging the cable operators more affiliate fees, which they have to pass on to their customers in order to maintain margins. So, you're a little bit shooting the messenger when you blame the cable operators for increasing cable costs. A lot of it is because of companies like ESPN. So. I'm going to defend them a little bit. Kind of get that Monty Burns sort of accident. <laughs> Matty, the idea of a la carte cable has been on the table for at least two decades. And yet, one of my thoughts when I look at this story is that I think we actually are getting a little bit closer to it. I'm not necessarily saying in the next year or two, but the idea that someone can just have one provider and then they just check the box on which channels they're going to pay. And if they're like David Hansen, and they're a big ESPN fan. They're absolutely going to pay whatever ESPN is going to charge them. Well, if you do, yeah, I think that's that's possible because if you do give the 
the pipes more store more power more you know a bigger bargaining chip at the table they can do that and they can negotiate with the affiliates and decide okay you know here's what we're going to pay here's what here's how customers can interact with the service now more so than they can before so that that could be one right one side outcome from this deal Joseph A. Bank is buying Eddie Bauer for $825 million. They are buying them from private equity firm Golden Gate Capital. David, on this news, Joseph A. Bank, was the stock was only down a few cents. That was it. I, which makes me wonder, have they just made a good deal? I don't know it, if it's it seems a good like it's deal. Being, <laughs> it seems like it's being received that way. They're not getting punished for it. Let me put it that way. You can put, you can put it that way. I don't know if it's a good deal. Uh, so, the story is kind of evolving. Back in October, Joseph A. Bank made a bid for the larger men's warehouse. Men's warehouse said, absolutely not. And then men's <laughs> warehouse said, well, how about we buy you? And Joseph A. Bank said, uh, I don't think so. So they've really been trying to make some sort of move. I guess they see Eddie Bauer as, all right, we're not going to get together with men's warehouse. So let's go out and buy Eddie Bauer, like you said, from a private equity firm for almost three times what the private equity firm paid for it a couple years ago. So I don't know if it's the best deal. That, that never makes me feel good when you're buying something that you paid a lot yeah, less for a couple you, years ago. Right, and we, we discussed, I mean, you don't want to be a private equity firm's exit strategy at right. any point. But it, I just the, the strange thing with, with Josie Bank, I just feel like, are these guys just itching to do a deal? I mean, it just it just seems, when a company is, is doing this and sort of making offers and you know deciding what to do, it makes you. It makes me think their business, their their organic business, isn't all that great. If they're actually, you know they're looking for a way to spend money, usually a, com- a prudent company will realize that the returns on their capital that they're getting from their business aren't good. We need to invest that elsewhere. That's obviously what the message they've got to be sending, especially if they're willing to pay a price like this. And yet, when you look at the stock, shares of Joseph A. Bank over the last twelve months are up more than thirty five percent. They're beating the market, which I don't think any one of us would have predicted. No, not at all. I think that's because if you buy one one share, you get like two free. I mean, I probably pushes the demand up a little bit. If nothing else, David, does this fend off? Does this help them fend off Men's Warehouse a little bit? I think it probably does. Yeah. All right. Coming up, we will hit some earnings and give you a look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, David Hanson, and Matt Argusinger. Guys, Whole Foods' first quarter profits rose more than 7%, but shares down this week after the company lowered guidance. Uh, Jason, I have to mention, uh, for disclosure purposes, John Mackey, co-founder and co-CEO at Whole Foods, is also a member of our board of directors here at The Motley Fool. What did you think of the quarter? Yeah, I mean, you know, on the surface, when you miss expectations, when you guide lower, when you speak of margins uh, being threatened, I mean, it's understandable why the stock sold off. Uh, but you know, I, I went through the call, I went through the release, and I think there are a lot of reasons to actually be encouraged. I mean, really, what what Whole Foods has had to do for the longest time is sort of overcome that whole paychecks hurdle, right? And that that was, I think, what concerned a lot of a lot of uh, investors was would they be uh, able to to expand their customer base. So what they're doing is they're focusing on more value oriented offerings, growing that 365 brand, uh, bringing in more pricing options where produce and, and stuff like that is concerned, uh, and it's working uh, to the extent <laughs> it's it's starting to bring in more traffic. It's definitely expanding their consumer base. Now it's it's a short run versus a long run sort of perspective here. In the short run, it's going to result in lower comps, and that's what we're seeing. The top line sales and the same store sales same store sales are going to be weaker in the short run, but the long Long run idea here is to expand the consumer base, 
pe- more people buying more things uh, increase the basket size, which will in turn drive that top line revenue and gross sales higher. Uh, so it, it, I like that strategy. I think they're going to have to do that because it's becoming more and more competitive. I think that investors ought to at least keep an eye on the stock price. Uh, the multiple, you know, they've always commanded a very premium multiple uh, because they are such a, a such a growth oriented company. I think that the market's probably going to sort of bring that multiple down over time. But but I think it's still a, a good look for a long term investment. And Maddie, it's bringing it down a little bit this week. Shares down about five percent after this latest quarter. Right. We we recommended the stock um, again in um, in my Supernova service this past week, and we we our recommendation came out on Wednesday, and you know we. Whether the stock went up or down, or good earnings or bad earnings, we were, we were going to buy the stock, no doubt. Because, you know, if you look at the results first, I mean, they, they you know, five percent comps in the in the quarter that we saw were most. I mean, every gro- other grocery store had negative comps, by the way, and then most retailers had very very tepid comps. I mean, that's that's a good result. I, I just I think it speaks to the brand power that Whole Foods has. But even if you just do some real basic projections on on the company and say, all right, if they can grow. Comps three to four percent a year. If they can grow the store count between ten and fifteen percent a year, you know, ten years from now they're going to have something on the order of 1,300 stores. Um, each of those stores is going to be making sixty million in revenue, give or take, um, on average, and that that's a much bigger company. Now, to Jason's point, they they get a high multiple right now. They get about one point five times sales on a multiple basis. They won't get that in the future. But even if you bring that down to one point zero times sales, say ten years out. You're going to get you get a good return from buying Whole Foods today, and I think that's just it. You know, we saw on this call for the longest time they've referred to their market opportunities around 1,000 stores in the U.S. They're now upping that to about 1,200 stores in the U.S., and that's what right. investors have to keep an eye on here. At 373 stores today, there still is a long runway of growth ahead. So even when that multiple starts coming down, there's still plenty of growth. Absolutely. To be AIG's fourth quarter profit came in higher than expected. They raised their dividend by 25 percent. David. All in all, it looked pretty good, and yet the shares were trading down a little bit. Yeah, it was a pretty boring quarter at AIG, which is not what you used to get with AIG. <laughs> it used to be pretty exciting uh, in terms of the derivatives portfolio winding that down, getting out of businesses that they frankly just should not be in. Um, yeah, I liked when I, I liked it more when I was an owner of the company as a taxpayer. <laughs> but anyway, it's a good point too. Taxpayers have been paid back on the AIG investment, if that's what you want to call it now. Um, but yeah, as an AIG shareholder today, this is really just a company getting back to fundamentals and being a boring insurance company, which this quarter looked like it was. Um, so I think you have to be optimistic about the future, getting out of the businesses they shouldn't be in. So I still have a bright outlook for, for AIG. Zillow's fourth quarter profits more than doubled the previous year. They also brought in record revenue for the quarter. Uh, looks good, Maddie. Revenue is rising, but costs are also rising. Sure, costs. I mean, I'm not surprised here. They're they're investing in their platform and investing in new in new verticals. I mean, but still, revenue up 70. percent um, The one thing I liked about the quarter from the release and the conference call is, you know, last quarter um, they talked about the idea that oh, you know, our traffic is growing twice the rate of our of our the number two and number three competitors in our space. And there was all spe- they didn't name those competitors and there was all the speculation. Well this quarter they did. There was a little footnote in the release that said, oh by the way, our traffic is, yes, more more than twice that of Trulia and Realtor.com. <laughs> so they I, I don't know why that is, but they certainly just laid it out there. And so you, maybe as a way of saying, hey look, we're the we're the dominant Internet and mobile platform in real estate right now. These guys, they're out there, but they're the imitators in the space. We're the leader. Um, I thought that was interesting. To go back to men's apparel, do you foresee any sort of merger in this industry over the next couple of years? If truly a 
and Realtor.com start to fall behind to the point where it's like, you know what, we'll we'll buy you for a song. I don't know. After seeing what Joseph Bank, Jose Banks doing, I think they they have a bigger chance of buying Trulia <laughs> or Realtor. No, I, I don't I don't see that. I think I think Zillow is going to keep focusing on its own dominance and without having to, to any consolidation there. All right, let's wrap up with the stocks on our radar. David Hanson, what do you got this week? Looking at uh, Campus Crest Communities. This is a smaller company, ticker CCG, and this is a real estate investment trust that specializes in building basically college apartments on and right off college campuses. And so, so if you can picture a campus and across the street there's some land, they'll build an apartment complex, students will live there, et cetera. But the more interesting part of their business is they're actually partnering with colleges to build on campus land because colleges don't want to have the expense of building an entirely new apartment complex. Um, and especially state colleges that have tight budgets right now, they're looking to other companies to come in and build for them. Uh, and Campus Crest is one of those. So it's a smaller player, it's a real estate investment trust, so it pays out a pretty hefty dividend, 7% yield. It's on my radar. Plus, if you're building apartment complexes for college students, I have to believe they're just going to get trashed. And you're just going to, that seems like a, a, <laughs> repeat, a, perpetuity. a repeat purchase kind of business there. Yeah, right. Maddie, what's on your radar this sure, week? Sure, I'm looking at Tile Shop, uh, t- ticker TTS. They report earnings next week. This this company has had quite a past few months. There was a short report that came out back in November that you know really looked into their sourcing in China and and suggested that there was some fraud going on there, and which ultimately there actually was. Uh, this is their first quarter after sort of the you know that news came out where they're going to report. Just interested to see you know what they say about that, how the quarter went out. I mean, more focused on you know they're building new stores, how the retail business is going, um, and if they can get past all that. Jason Moser. Yeah, uh, going to keep an eye here on Amazon, the ticker AMZN. And I think a lot of the noise that's being uh, made today about this potential price increase in their prime offering uh, could certainly provide an opportunity for long term investors to get into the stock. I think, you know, we've seen a lot of talk here lately about surveys, about people, you know, at what price point they wouldn't renew. And I think that's all fine and dandy, but you have to take those surveys with a grain of salt. Uh, I mean, remember, you know, people told Einhorn apparently that they'd eat more Taco Bell instead of Chipotle, and he's just getting hammered on that <laughs> short. So, <laughs> just you know, kind of look at those things and take them with a grain of salt. But I think that you know, I, I look at this as, as really an opportunity for Amazon to potentially present more uh, offerings for consumers, potentially more price points. Maybe they they have a higher prime price point, maybe a lower one, maybe one in between. Differentiate between the offerings and give customers a chance to really focus in what they value most. And don't forget, I mean, Amazon just—they brought in five and a half billion dollars in operating cash flow last year alone. I mean, this is a company that's still growing by leaps and bounds, and in the stock price today at three hundred fifty dollars, I think is an opportunity. All right, Matt Arkesinger, Jason Moser, David Hansen, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks you. By the way, check out where the money is. It's our newest daily podcast from the Motley Fool, hosted every day by David Hansen and Matt Copenheffer. Up next, Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner sits down with best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner recently sat down with best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell in front of a live audience of our members. They discussed Gladwell's newest book, David and Goliath. Malcolm, what would be great is just to have you just outline the overall premise of the book. Well, I was interested in uh, in the book in describing um, in asymmetrical conflicts or more generally in this notion of uh, uh, are, are our, is our understanding of what an advantage is accurate? And that's the theme that runs throughout the whole book. So if our understanding of 
advantage, what an advantage is, is so accurate, why does the weaker party in a war win as often as it does? Because the weird thing about, if you look at histories of warfare, is that the, um, the quote-unquote underdog, the much smaller party in any kind of conflict, wins an astonishing number of times, which suggests that our that you know, maybe we're fixating on the wrong variables in explaining conflict. And then I, I run with that idea and talk about schools and education and dyslexia and all kinds of entrepreneurialism and all kinds of things along those same lines, wondering whether our kind of intuitive accounting of these things is accurate. What I'd like to do is just spot up some of the characters, some of the narrative of the, mm -hmm. of the book, so you can just tell maybe a couple mm -hmm. short little tidbit about each one. So why don't we start with Vivek? And since I'm going to mispronounce names, why don't I have you pronounce the full v name? Vivek Ranadiv. <laughs> Vivek. Who is the guy who founded uh, TIPCO, um, software company in, uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, <laughs> he's sort of the one who got me rolling on this because I ran into him at a conference once, and I really had no idea who he was. This is a problem of, that I have that I can't, I have very, very poor facial recognition. In fact, parenthetically, I once was at a dinner at some conference, sat next to a guy who, for the whole dinner, and I thought he was a graduate student, and I made him discuss Michigan State basketball with me the entire time, and then discovered at the end of the uh, conversation that it was Larry Page. <laughs> and it never... You know, someone was like, do you realize you talked to Larry Page? I was like, that was Larry Page? I thought he was a graduate student. Um, so I'm bad at this. Anyway, I run into this guy, Vivek, and um, I start talking to him, not realizing that he's the head of TIPCO, uh, about his daughter's basketball team. And he had coached, just finished coaching his daughter's, 12-year-old daughter's basketball team. And Vivek, being from Mumbai, doesn't know the slightest thing about basketball. And so he went to uh, watch basketball to educate himself on this and uh, concluded that the way Americans played basketball was utterly insane. Um, he didn't understand why you retreated after you scored. Why do you run back to your own end and wait for the other team to come up, to bring the ball up? I mean, sometimes people play the full court press, but his whole point was, why wouldn't you press all the time? You're the mo particularly if you're the weaker party, if you're a weaker party, why would you allow the other team, which is better at shooting and passing and scoring than you, to shoot, pass, and score more quickly than they would otherwise? Why wouldn't you try and stop them from doing the thing that makes them, that makes them good, right? And particularly when you're talking about 12-year-old girls, um, who's, you know, the, he, he realized that if you play the full court press with 12-year-old girls, um, they won't even get the ball inbounds. Um, so he... <laughs> His team, and furthermore, he realized that his team that his daughter was playing on was a team of girls from Silicon Valley. They were the daughters of people like him. In other words, these were not girls who went home every night and shot baskets. They were girls who went home at night and like, dreamt about becoming marine biologists. They, were, they had no talent whatsoever, basically. <laughs> so he gets these girls together and he says, look, I don't know anything about basketball. You have no talent whatsoever. It's pointless for us to shoot, dribble, do anything. What we're going to do is get an insane shape, and I'm going to teach you how to play the most aggressive form of the full court press. And so they win, start winning games by scores like 6 nothing, And <laughs> they go all the way to the national championship. Now, the fascinating thing about that story is that uh, A, 
he, it's the rational strategy if your team sucks, right? In fact, any team that is a decided underdog in any basketball contest ought to play the full court press, even though there is a chance if the other team can break the press, you're gonna get blown out. But his point is, so what? You're gonna lose anyway, right? Your only chance of actually winning is to do something radical. So interesting thing number one is, why then do so few underdog teams play the full court press? Why is there an unwillingness to follow a strategy that is in your best interest? And the answer is, because it's hard and because it gets, people don't like it. Um, and Vivek, people didn't like Vivek when he was coaching this team. Let's close in the narrative section here with your version or your interpretation of the real showdown between David and Goliath. Oh yeah, David, first of all, the sling uh, is one of the most feared weapons in ancient times. It's not a child's toy. The, the rock that goes from David's sling has a, a stopping power with the, that's equivalent to a, a bullet from a 38 caliber handgun. Uh, these are some of the most. So when David decides to bring a sling to a sword fight, he's got superior technology. He's not messing around here. He knows exactly what he's doing. Second, Goliath uh, probably has something called acromegaly, uh, which is a condition uh, where there's a tumor on your pituitary gland. And so your pituitary overproduces human growth hormone. And many of the great giants in history have acromegaly. Andre the Giant, the great wrestler, acromegaly, right? Tallest man in history, uh, kind of Robert Woodley had acromegaly. He was seven foot 11, I think. Um, acromegaly makes you really, really big and tall. It also comes with a side effect that the tumor starts to compress the optic nerves and radically diminish your vision. And if you read the biblical story of Goliath very closely, it's clear the guy can't see. He's led onto the valley floor, much more than this, by an attendant. He's the most mightiest warrior in Palestine, and he has to have a boy lead him by the hand to the battlefield. And then there's this whole thing about, it takes him forever to figure out where, where David is and what David is doing. Because David comes down from the mountain and doesn't have a sword, doesn't have a shield, isn't wearing armor, duh. He does not intend to fight you in a sword fight. Why does Goliath take forever to respond to this? Because he can't see him, right? So here you have a kid who is really fast moving, uh, nimble, has superior technology, is up against, has changed the rules of the conflict without telling his opponent, and his opponent is largely blind. That is not the story of an underdog. <laughs> <laughs> David holds all the cards, right? Properly understood. And that's a beautiful example of how the stories we tell about advantages are just so screwy. Why do we worship size, for example, in all forms, not just in warriors, but also in comp We have this obsession. If something is big, it must also then be ferocious and a terrifying opponent. Wrong, 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 right? Um, and that's the lesson of the original story. Is it true that every Goliath was once a David? Uh, not everyone. Um, in New York City, there are lots of Goliaths who were born Goliaths um, and will no doubt die Goliaths. Um, uh, no, but the most interesting trajectory is when people or companies uh, go from one state to the next. And the question is, how long can they, um, how long can they, can you continue to, um, embody the David values, even as you become 
Goliath. So I was on my book tour, I went to Microsoft, and I hadn't been to the Microsoft campus in Seattle for maybe seven or eight years, and I don't know how it's possible, but it's gotten even bigger. Um, and I don't, this is not a good thing, right? I mean, it's become, it's like a huge city now. And I don't know, you know, are there any vestiges that remain of that really humble, a really hungry, nimble, innovative um, company of 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. um, you know, or when, I, uh, I, or when I, you, yeah, so it's a, it is a, it is a constant, um, it's a constant problem. The, mm -hmm. fact, the act of becoming successful undermines the very reasons why you became successful. I wonder, what do you think the principles of a great Goliath are? I mean, I can guess one of them has something to do with empathy in the context of the story you tell about Belfast mm -hmm. in 1972 and the use of yeah. police and power and the assumptions of what would work and what instead worked. So uh, maybe through that story mm -hmm. or any other examples, yeah. what makes for a smart Goliath? Well, many things, but one of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently is that I think that uh, uh, one of the things that um, uh, that when companies become large, one of the things they need to do is to, is to use their size and strength um, to become more tolerant of um, dissent, confusion, arguments, um, to back off in a certain sense. I mean, I, I always thought, remember this. I used to work for many years at the Washington Post in its heyday when it truly was Goliath. And there was a reporter there named Michael Isakoff, still around, one of the greatest, single greatest investigative reporters of my generation. I mean, a legend. And also, a deeply, uh, I like Michael, a deeply obnoxious guy. But the point was, he was a great investigative reporter because he's obnoxious, he's a pit bull, doesn't take no for an answer, right? And I remember that at a certain point, the editors at the Washington Post got fed up with him and got rid of him. That is absurd. The whole point of being the Washington Post and having tons and tons of resources in a vast newsroom is that you ought to be able to find room for that kind of character, right? And if you can, and it, that requires that requires more work from management, dealing with someone who's difficult and who yells at you when you mess with their stories and who goes off on quixotic things and disappears for a while, makes your, it's more headaches, right? Makes your life more complicated. But you have to understand that is the price you pay for remaining on the cutting edge, is you have to deal with that, right? Now it's easy if you're a small company to deal with that because everything's chaotic. And you realize we got no, no choice, we have to be this way. When you're large, you fall into the trap of thinking, I can make everything run smoothly now. I can have layers of comfortable management, and we can all do things by the book. As opposed to saying, no, 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 you have to continue to find ways to shake it up, to have a kind of disputatious culture. Hmm. A Goliath that's open to dissent. Is, I think, a Goliath that can stave off the worst parts mm -hmm. of bigness. And a Goliath that has a smooth tempo Total convention, marches in a line, everyone has a job description, EVP of this, yeah. everyone's got a role. You would prefer to bet on the seemingly weaker, smaller, chaotic, disruptive, yeah, niche-dominating opponent I've, in their marketplace. I've become more and more convinced, um, particularly from writing this book, but also just from um, my experience in this, that, that, that company culture is 
it's the hardest thing to quantify, but the most important predictor of where a company is headed. Um, and you can, you know, spending a lot of time in a large room of people from an organization gives you, um, I think, really valuable insights into um, um, how that company works and how it innovates and how it views its, com you know, just that, if you have that feeling that people, that uh, people have, um, have turned down the volume in their brain, then you know that there's trouble. Coming up, more with Malcolm Gladwell. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Let's rejoin Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner's conversation with best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell. Where do you see yourself in the continuum of David to Goliath to the extent that they can both be put on a continuum? Where do you see yourself professionally? Where do yeah. you see your journey? Where do you see elements of the David qualities having shown up in the work you're doing? Well, you know, I was clearly once David. And what I used to do as a young journalist is what all young journalists do is I used to write long, angry, vicious takedowns of prominent, successful journalists who I considered to be Goliaths and therefore worthy of my disdain. Now, of course, I'm Goliath. And what happens? <laughs> young journalists write long, lengthy, vicious takedowns of me. <laughs> and I always read them, and I just think, I have become everything I once despised. <laughs> and, and as that person, are you an investor, and how do you invest? I, well, I, you know, I, um, I, am, I, I, sh I have one great, um, my father, uh, is, uh, who is a very, very smart man, has one many great qualities, but the one that I have learned the most from is that my father um, uh, is intellectually humble, and it's expressed in the following way. When he meets someone, he makes an immediate assessment of whether in the domain that they're going to be talking about, does this person know more than me or less than me? If the person knows even a little bit more, my father totally defers. Um, which is a lovely trait. Um, so, you know, here's a guy with a PhD in applied, in applied mathematics, and I have seen him deep in conversation with the, you know, our Mennonite farmer neighbor who has a fifth grade education. Um, he's, you know, he is, he has that element of humility. Anyway, he taught me this. So when it comes to investing, my basic position is identify someone who knows more than me and just do whatever they say. <laughs> um, so I have a, someone who manages, but for fun, I have a little Schwab account. And I play with it, and I try. And it has a wonderful effect of enforcing, reinforcing that humility. Because <laughs> <laughs> try as I might, I cannot beat the market, even though I have a series of what I consider to be brilliant ideas. <laughs> what is your most recent brilliant idea in the form of an option trade? Well, I was just telling you this. I, was, I had this whimsical notion. So if I were to, to um, to found an investment company, I would call it um, uh, uh, Stopped Clock Investments, because I have been uh, right twice in my life, <laughs> like the stop clock. Once, once was, I, and I'm, I'm totally boasting now, I went all cash in 2007. Thank you. <laughs> um, and the second was, very, in a very minor way, in the beginning of January, I bought protection for my portfolio. Um, if the stock market, I don't, I don't even. Right now, just this right month. Right now, from now till 
From January 1st to April, if the market goes down 10% or more, I'm in the money, I guess, is that what the phrase is? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I'm very, I'm, but I, I was, as I was saying to you, I, wanted to, I only did it because I wanted to feel, I wanted to know what it felt like to short something. Because I've always been fascinated by short sellers. And I had done a big piece on, years ago, on Nassim Taleb. Um, and I was, he, as he described the torture of, of betting on catastrophe, um, I was just fascinated by that. So I wanted to feel like it. What was it like? So I bought my little option. And um, you know, then the market goes for a couple of days. And I had this initial surge of elation because my option is suddenly sort of value. And then I feel gross. <laughs> and now I'm not sure I ever want to do it again. I, I don't know. I, you know, the psychologically, there's a reason why someone like Warren Buffett is so much more appealing um, than a short seller. Not that he's a better person necessarily, but what he's doing seems so much more consistent with um, how we want to think as human beings, right? I mean, or at least a better way of saying it is, it's so much easier to think his way than to bet that things might fall apart. We have to close to let you get on your way, but could you just close by sharing a little bit about how you think about, how we should think about our disadvantages in life? Anyone in the room that sees, I have this weakness, I have this flaw, yeah. I have this thing that's held me back or this shortcoming, um, or I see it in a ch- my child, I see them struggling with this, how should we think about disadvantages? Well, as uh, you know, it's, it is a cliche, but they, as learning opportunities, there are, you know, you can learn by capitalizing on your strengths or you can learn by compensating for your weaknesses. The compensation path is far more difficult. It's far more rare, but it's way more powerful. The things you learn um, as you are working around or through adversity are lessons that are far more deeply felt than the things you learn because of your strengths. And so, you know, the, I chose dyslexia in my book for a reason, because there are just so many examples of people who uh, refuse to deal. That is just about the most serious impediment you can throw in the path of a child. And the idea that there are lots and lots and lots and lots of really, really successful people who, when faced with that impediment at the age of six and seven, just were undaunted by it and just went about their, just found another way to kind of go about the business of getting through school and then ultimately through life. That to me is such a beautiful example of how we radically underestimate our ability as human beings to deal with adversity. I mean, I think we're much better at it than we think. That's gonna do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our producer is Matt Greer. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.